Hey everybody, this is Sean, and welcome to another episode of Shot by Shot. This is the second of two episodes with the legendary Frank Quietly. So whereas our first episode walked through his history and his exhibits and some of his big projects, this episode has Brian and Frank talking a little bit more from a mentorship point of view. Yeah, this was a, a little bit more on the educational side, I think. That may be a little bit of a stretch, but... Uh... <laughs> We also got to learn a lot about something I wasn't aware of, um, and we need to put some links up with this podcast, but uh, he had an exhibition, a gigantic museum exhibit, uh, all about his artwork, which is pretty amazing. And I, I was, uh, was, was pretty enthralled when I started digging down that rabbit hole and looking for some of these videos. It was a really cool thing. I mean, this episode is interesting because it feels like a TED Talk from Brian and Frank about democratization of comics how they grew up going through the big two and how then a lot of them went to create their own venues. And now it kind of asks what's next. And it's interesting to hear two voices who've been so prominent and so successful kind of step, take a step back and ask themselves where they want to go. And obviously Kevin, we can say where Brian went, which was to crowdfunding. You know, we're just in a strange environment and new things are working. And, you know, it used to be like they talk about in, the, in this show, everything ran through Marvel and DC uh, forever. And, you know, now with the power of the Internet and, and social media and being able to reach out to your fans directly, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo. I mean, these platforms allow creators to connect directly to their fans and to create a fan base. And that's uh, been fun with watching that happen with Brian's book. And also asking where the next generation of comic lovers is coming from. So are they people who are going to buy monthly comics from comic stores? Are they going to buy them from their Kindles or their iPads? These are all interesting questions made by people who have been around long enough to observe them. So yeah, it's a great talk and uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. Having Frank Quietly on a podcast was just something I never thought would ever happen. And I'm still enthralled by it. That's right, Sean. Making your dreams come true. One podcast. <laughs> Meeting Kevin, the Southern gentleman, the comics dad, is the best thing that ever happened to us. <laughs> All right, everybody. Enjoy. Now, um, one of the things that um, that you told me about, which, which I thought was uh, really kind of awesome because it's just not the kind of thing that happens here is the uh, the Calvin Grove uh, exhibition um, that you did. Could you talk a little bit about that? We have this uh, amazing situation in, in Scotland, more than the rest of the UK, where the majority of our museums and art galleries are free to get into. And... Um, the the biggest art gallery and museum in Glasgow is called Kelvin Grove. And um, it was some rich philanthropist uh, called Lord Kelvin who who went out that's, and that's an brought, awesome name. <laughs> yeah, Lord Kelvin brought loads of loads of artifacts from all around the world back to this museum and bought loads of art and just left it for the city. And um, it's it's the biggest civic collection in Europe. We've got um, 
ex examples of all the impressionists. Uh, we've got Salvador Dali. We've got, uh, we've got amazing stuff. And it's all free, but they also have, the, the museum also has a, a temporary exhibition space and they do rotating exhibitions and they actually charge money for that. And it kind of helps keep the rest of it free. And they really make an effort with the, these temporary exhibitions. They really make an effort to appeal to people that don't normally go to art galleries. Mm. Um, it's, it's pretty hit and miss. They did one on a, um, they, they did an exhibition on a, there's two big rival soccer teams in Glasgow, um, <laughs> Celtic and Rangers. <laughs> and uh, and the majority of Celtic uh, fans are are Catholics and the majority of Rangers fans are wow. Protestant. <laughs> well, there's, there's actually like six, a sectarian divide and there's often <laughs> violent clashes it's you know like um and they thought that they thought they could put on an exhibition of uh, both these teams and uh, and they realized afterwards when nobody went that um on the one hand a nobody that's really passionate about one of those teams wants to pay to go to an exhibition to see <laughs> the silverware of the other team <laughs> And also, the majority of the majority of soccer fans don't want to pay to go to an exhibition in an art gallery. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, the they, do, they do they do make efforts to they do make efforts to to reach out to people that don't normally go to um, art galleries. And a few years ago, the the BBC made a, a series of programs called "What Do Artists Do All Day?" Yeah, yeah, I remember and, that. Um, they started off with um, contemporary fine art artists, Tracy Emin and Anthony Gormley and people like that. And they were surprised at how popular they were, um, given that most people aren't particularly invested in art. And then they started branching out a bit um, and they, they invited me to, to um, do a programme with them. And the the people that ran uh, Glasgow museums uh, obviously watch art programs on the BBC <laughs> and they had seen it and they were like maybe this is something we could maybe we could reach out to this guy and do an exhibition and yeah, maybe it would be good for families maybe it'd be he's good right for down education. the road <laughs> you know. and um, and and that's the reason it got off the ground and it ended up it turned out it was a it was a huge exhibition the exhibition space is the whole of the the basement of the art gallery and museum and it's um it's maybe 10 rooms or something and um we had about 150 of my pieces framed oh, and uh, and we had all the walls had huge vinyls of my work blown up um, from floor to ceiling. We had lots of glass uh, cases, vitrines, that had a thumbnailed script. That letter from Dan Raspler that explained how bad my storytelling was and what it was I had to concentrate oh, on. Oh man, that's really um, cool. Yeah, which loads of people really, they were like, wow, imagine putting that into an exhibition. Like a letter from an editor saying, 
you really need to work on stuff because because you're not nearly good enough. You know, I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah. this is what this is what you need to do to become better. You know, so uh, we had loads of AV footage uh, with Alan Grant, Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Jamie Grant, Chip Kid, loads oh, of different wow. people wow. talking about comics and talk. Chip Kid lent us um, about I don't know more than a dozen pieces. We had Frank Miller, Neil Adams. Charles Burns, I mean, like... Okay, so it was, it was all of comics, thing, but, but it was all of comics, but through the lens, you know, sort of of, a, of Frank Quietly, you know, that's, that's... Yeah, I mean... That's really awesome. It, it kind of went through, it went through my career from room to room in roughly chronological order. It had, uh, it had loads of thumbnailed scripts, loads of layouts, loads of, um, there was envelopes, like Marvel envelopes, you know, like with the, the little window on them and Spider-Man in the- Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the corner and, uh, and me practicing headshots of Superman while I was still doing X-Men. Wow. You know, um, there was, you know, the notepads you get in hotel rooms, there was, there was, Character drawings of of Jean Grey, on, oh, like hotel wow. notepads. Man, that's that's um, really cool. So there it was wasn't, thumbnails. It wasn't just the thumbnail work. It was a little that bit of had, um, That had like the order that I had to phone in for the Chinese. So it had like chicken satay <laughs> and you know like you know like salt and pepper king prawn and you know like. Did you put the raisin box? Was it part of the exhibition? <laughs> the, the raisin, the raisin box was in there, and the story awesome. of my wife putting it in the bin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there was loads of there was loads and loads of the uh, like process stuff. The last room before you before you get to the gift shop, um, there was some there was some rooms that had adult only uh, content in them, um, but the the last room before you got to the gift shop, they had set up these trestle tables. And I had drawn a male figure and a, a female figure, and they printed them out on 11 by 17 Bristol boards in very pale cyan, like non-repro blue. Oh, wow. <laughs> which allowed children and adults to draw around the, the figure, but put like a, a mask and an outfit. And, you know, it's just, even if you couldn't draw, you had a basic thing there that, and um, there's actually a, a there's a famous Scottish artist and playwright called John Byrne, who who went to the exhibition and uh, and when he got to the last room, he saw all these parents and children and students and adults on their own all sitting drawing. Oh and man! He said in an interview that every exhibition in every art gallery should have a section where people have the the materials where if they feel inspired to do a drawing, they should be able to do that. So it was, it was like, what happened was, when we started talking about doing the exhibition, I was just going along with it, not knowing if it was going to happen. And eventually it slowly started sinking in that it was going to happen. And then it was supposed to be a temporary exhibition for six weeks. And because of a couple of exhibitions that hadn't worked out well, and because of a traveling exhibition that didn't turn up, they ended up making it, they scheduled it for six months over the summer period. Wow. And 
I remember a couple of days before it opened, I went up to, they invited me up to see how it was shaping up. And it's a huge space and they had all these, they had all these um, huge vinyls up on the walls with framed prints and uh, framed originals in front of them and borrowed artworks and all these vitrines with extra stuff in them, thumbnail scripts and stuff. And it was just, it was a huge exhibition. And I, I didn't quite get a panic attack, but I really, <laughs> I was really worried because I thought comics are a really niche interest. And there's a couple of dozen guys in Glasgow that are really into comics. <laughs> and oh, so that was, once the, that was what you thought the audience was, was those, those couple of dozen guys. There, <laughs> they're going to have this exhibition on for six months. And if, and if it tanks, I'm going to be really embarrassed. And you know, and it turned out uh, they got they got an amazing response from schools. All the schools just presumed that kids would be interested in comics and took them along. Um, they got an amazing response from foreign tourists. Word of mouth was tremendous because loads of people went along just to see what it was like and actually found it interesting, even though they weren't they didn't think they were interested in comics. Um, we had arts programs from radio and television coming up and doing features on it. Um, it was just, it was a really big success. So, which was a huge relief to me, obviously. But, um, but I was, I was really genuinely worried that it was going to, it was going to be like the Rangers and Celtic exhibition. It was <laughs> one of these things. You're saying, thinking comic books, you know, that'll be popular, and then it turned out it wasn't. Yeah, I was, comics are always popular. They've always been popular. They'll always be popular. The problem that we have right now is that our industry has made itself really small. You know, yeah. by the way, it's it's running and things are changing now a little bit. We had Jeff Smith on a while back and, you know, he was part of the movement to get, you know, got bone into mm -hmm. all the, the schools, you know, with the scholastic books and it really opened mm -hmm. up a whole new audience. So, which is the DC and Marvel have been, I won't say completely ignoring, but like 99.9% .9 ignoring for 30 years or so. You know, and kids are, we all got into it because we love comics as kids. And, but you'll see that one, I don't know if it's because of the movies or, or what, but, you know, comics are everywhere. Uh, they're just not necessarily published in, in comic book stores. An exhibition like this, it really proves that people love superheroes. They love comics, uh, whether it's, you know, comic strips from the, from the papers, you know, when, when the, you know, really don't exist mm -hmm. much anymore, but there's an audience for this stuff. It's just uh, getting it in front of them and letting them know this kind of thing is there. And uh, it's really cool to hear though, because uh, I can imagine, you know, you, you don't really know, like, is there going to be a hundred people show up or a hundred thousand? You have no clue. I was going to say, it's interesting what you're saying about Marvel and DC being slow to kind of embrace Scholastic because on the one hand, it's a no brainer financially, but it's also, for the longer term, it's like, this is your new audience. These yeah. are your new consumers, yeah. you know? And this isn't a profit-driven thing, but if you can take some of your best storylines and some of your best artwork and put it out there to young, impressionable minds, I mean, that's, that's invaluable, you know? It's really, it's really strange times in comics. And I'm guilty of not keeping my finger in the pulse very much. Um, I've got no social media and and I don't 
I don't. <laughs> I know, and I don't really keep up to date with what's going on. I just hear things, but obviously because I talk to people. But you know, I I, I don't make a point. I don't get up every morning and and check it, check out what's happening online in the comics industry. I never have. Where we're at with sales, with page rates, with the way DC in particular is is doing things where the the characters and properties are more important than the writers and artists that are are are, are working with them, uh, where merchandising is is a uh, is dictating things. Where I don't know. I just we're at a really really strange place. Paper prices and I mean the price of comics is. It's really off-putting when you compare yeah. it to when you compare it to what you pay for streamed television, yeah. which is you know I mean it's like there's there's hardly a way of looking at what we still kind of call mainstream comics. There's hardly a way of looking at it where it, it kind of looks like it's making sense, but it kind of looks like it's going to keep on going. Okay, you know things are changing and things will change and. I think everything's going to look really different in a year or two. Very um, different, yeah. We're headed that yeah. direction, and you know, DC was the first. That was an anvil that dropped, the recent, I guess, restructuring, so to speak. But you know, people, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm standing back from 50 feet. I don't really know. You know, I've got friends at DC, but or had friends at DC. Uh, but, you know, the, <laughs> the person that came in from outside is like, why are we doing things like this? Why are you doing where's our books for kids? Why aren't we embracing the YA, you know, audience? And these are questions that a lot of people have been asking for many years. And, you know, I'm, I turned 50 in a few months, which is horrifying. But, you know, when I grew up, we went to the, you know, the gas stations and the the grocery stores and, you know, uh, and we bought comics off the newsstands. You never know if you're going to get a, you get this issue of Spider-Man next month, they, that might not show up. You know, you never knew what you were going to get. So we were trying all this different stuff and, you know, uh, but you know, I've got kids now. They would much rather buy a video game or watch YouTube videos. Now they'll pick, they'll read Diary of a Wimpy Kid and things like that. They have no interest in comics. And when I would take them to the comic book store, the comics for kids sections were, you know, apparently all the editors at all the companies that got a memo that said it needs to look like Batman animated series, or uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like for for years it was like the whole. But they just weren't interested because they were just. They read it 10 minutes later, it's done. Why did I spend $4 on that? You know, it should yeah. be 99 cents. And there's no money in 99 cent books because paper's too expensive. And, you know, everybody's trying to fix the direct market to get more people in it, but it's just not designed for it. It's not going to work. I, I think the, you know, I don't know, we're in a really strange time. Uh, I mean, hence, but like, you know, us doing a Kickstarter book. A year ago, and I've been had, you know, guys I work with have been trying to get us to do one. And I'm like, I don't, that's just not real, right? I mean, that's just something that, you're doing, it's, it's not in a bookstore, it's so different, but that's the way we're connecting with our fans now, because there's an audience that hasn't been served. You've got the books that the publishers won't pay for. Uh, you know, now you can go directly to the people that want to buy that, and they'll pay a premium for it because, you know, they want to buy it, period. But yeah. that's not going to work for, that's a different marketplace, you know. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, like, DC is going to spearhead this new initiative where they're trying to get the books into major bookstore chains. 
And all this, that's the only way the direct market is going to survive is to bring in new readers. You know, yeah. and, mm -hmm. they, they haven't been doing it for a long time. They've just been, you know, doing for a, a niche amount of fans, you know, the yeah. collectible things. I also think, um, show what the uh, Calvin Grove uh, brings up a, another uh, interesting point about, about comics is that the show wasn't attended exclusively by comic book fans. No. You know, it was uh, it was um, a little bit of everyone. It was uh, it was mm -hmm. kids. It was uh, adults. I think the the interesting thing about comics is what you're capable of doing with it. I mean, you you can do kids stories with comics, um, but you can also do super highbrow art with comics. Um, it's 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 available for um, for for everything. I think with a gallery show like that you can have pages that are Superman pages that kids are going to see and they're going to get a kick out of, but then adults are going to enjoy the process. The comic book fan today isn't the comic book fan from 50 years ago. I think the comic book fan is a broad spectrum of uh, incredibly diverse people. Uh, so, um, so I think it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting that uh, oftentimes it takes uh, a gallery show or it takes something like that to kind of point out to people that that it is the people that are buying comics is the niche but you know the, the people that uh, that love comics the people that love the experience of comics that's actually everyone like videos of the of the gallery show like they're little... yeah there's 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 a there's some stuff online about it one of the things about the show, I think, that really impressed people who went along that didn't know anything about comics was the fact that all the framed pieces were either blue line and pencils, pencils and inks, or watercolours on watercolour paper. Mm. Uh, and all the thumbnail scripts are tiny scribbly drawings with coffee rings and wine stains and phone numbers and food orders and you know it's very obviously a handmade process i think people think that everything's done on a computer these days you know yeah and yeah. when they actually people are very impressed when they see something that's actually just handmade that looks simple enough that they can understand it it's just a pencil drawing Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I do think that um, that oftentimes people think that comic book uh, comic books kind of manifest themselves from the ether. <laughs> you know, they, they when when they actually see uh, an original piece of comic book art, it's like, oh wow, someone drew that. <laughs> I have actually had on more than one occasion. I've had somebody saying that to me, like oh, I've never really thought somebody would have to draw these. And you're like, where did you think they came from? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, you, know, like you, <laughs> you order food, you know, like you know that somebody actually, somebody somewhere made it for you, you know? It's like, why would you be different with a drawing? But uh, I think I think we could also learn something from the, the French and the, the Japanese, where comics are are almost as ubiquitous as television or yeah. or prose. You know, it's something, it's, you know, like, you don't have a group of people who are called comic fans in the same way you don't have a group of people who are 
television fans or paperback novel fans because there's too much variety there. You yeah. know, like in Japan, you get you get manga. The, the genres are so broad that you couldn't possibly categorize it as one type of fan that's reading that stuff. You know, similarly in in in, in France, you know, the, the the breadth of of work that they've got there. Having said that, I mean the the kind of explosion of creator-owned work um, in the West, shall we say, the UK and the US in particular. Like when I started in comics 30 years ago, um, I would go to comic marts and I started off in underground comics and I would go to comic marts to sell the comics that we were writing and drawing. And it was like 99% of the people who were making and selling comics were men. And 99% of the people who were paying to come in and look at stuff and buy stuff for men. And over the years, that balance has started being redressed. And, um, and we're now at a stage where we don't just have a much better balance of male and female consumers and fans and creators and reviewers and editors and whatnot. But um, we also have a much broader mix of types yeah. of people. Yeah. And we have a much, much broader mix of genres and uh, and types of stories and formats of stories. We've got people that, we've people that are buying tiny zines. We've got people that are, uh, that only access their comics on on their phones or their tablets. You know, we've got people yeah. that, that really kind of follow like um, Kickstarter and Patreon and Twitch and all this kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's like um, we've got creators who are, are creating works and making a modest living, but they're controlling their own merchandising and they're retaining yeah. their own IPs. It's, I mean, it's, it, it seems to me, I think it's as difficult to make a decent living if you're just starting out and uh, doing your own thing as it is if you're trying to break into the mainstream market or if you've already been working in the mainstream market for a while. It's just you're not doing one of the top books, many of which don't even make a royalty these days. So, I mean, it's, I'm not suggesting for a minute that, that things are great, but there's a lot of really positive changes that I've seen in the last few decades. And, um, and I'm, I'm genuinely, I, I don't know where it's going next, but I'm genuinely interested to see where it's going to go because Marvel and DC can't keep going the way they're going other than just keeping their, their IPs alive for TV and film and merchandising, you know. Yeah. Well, which... I, think, I think they're not necessarily good shepherds of, of the industry. And, uh, and I think uh, a thing that's happening now, even though it's slowly, is to a certain extent, the fans are starting to become shepherds of, of the industry. They're starting to make the decision uh, and and like you said, it's if I had to do my career over again, I'm not certain that Marvel or DC would have been such an important part of of my career if I was starting now. Back when we started, 
that was it was it was kind of like a baseball kind of thing where it's just like okay well you you made it to the to the big leagues and everything else was farm leagues where you couldn't necessarily make a living um and uh and now it's not like that at all uh, now there are people that are making a much better living doing independent books than um most of the people working at marvel and dc yeah. so so it's uh the yeah. options the options are are starting to open now similarly i agree i think if i was starting my career again i would probably do a little less with marvel and dc uh, and i think i would have started looking at creator owned earlier than i did mm -hmm. but at the time that we were getting into it the kind of standard model was that certainly in the uk you usually started off with 2000 ad or the judge <laughs> magazine and then you get headhunted to vertigo and then you made it into dc universe and then marvel poached you you know i mean it, was, it went like that you know that's good and you know like if if you get married and you have children and you've you know you might pay for your house and you do this as a job that's that's a way of doing it and you learn your craft as you go along you know yeah. but um there were ex obviously the, the, there's always been exceptions i mean you you know you look at you look at chris ware and dan Clowes and, and charles burns and people like that you yeah. know yeah. who right from the start decided they were going to do their own thing and that was it and you look at people like mike mcnola who started off the way the rest of us started off and then suddenly went you know what I'm going to start doing my own thing now, you know, and David Mazzuccelli and, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly, I think it's never been easier. Yeah. Right. That's to the start off doing your own thing than it is just now. But of course the problem you've got is everybody and anybody can do their own thing. <laughs> so it's, it's finding the audience. It's, 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 it's getting to the front of the queue or getting, getting your moment in the spotlight or whatever it says. I don't know what advice to give to, to younger people who are trying to break in, you know? Yeah, I, I yeah. know that there are all these different, different platforms and different routes that you can take to get in, to yeah, do your own yeah. thing, to retain your own rights, but retaining your own rights to something that only your friends have seen <laughs> or that nobody's willing to pay for, that's yeah. really, that's a frustrating place to be if if yep. you're starting out and you're really trying to, you know? Yeah. Or do you go and work for DC for a low page rate or Marvel with no royalties on something that you've got no ownership of? The only advice, the only advice I can really give to, to people when they're starting out is really, really push yourself, really try and be the best you can be, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. I think, you know, I mean, there's there's no guarantees. It's the same in the music business. There's never any guarantees you're going to make it. Same in sports. You know, like, you can be really, 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 really good and you still might not make it. It requires luck. It requires being in the right place at the right time. It replies. It requires, sometimes it requires knowing people. It's, there's loads of different ways of making it, but it's a minority of people that do make it. They make it like a full-time job or they make it a lucrative job. You know, but I always feel that if you're always striving to find out how good you can get, then at the very, very least, you're going to live a better life. You're going to be happier yeah. with what you've produced. That's the worst case scenario. Other than that, 
you'll meet writers who be like, okay, this guy's never made any money, but you know what? He follows the script and he really delivers. I'll keep wanting to work with him. Yeah. I'll recommend him to other writers. There's, I think that striving for excellence, striving to be the best you can be, it's such a cliche, but it works. It works on every level, even even if you don't end up becoming a millionaire out of it, you know? Yeah, well, and, and something else that I've, that I've noticed is that, um, I mean, I can tell that with, uh, with you, it just didn't matter. You know, if, if you had managed to score that job as an accountant or a lawyer, you would have been an accountant or a lawyer that does comics in his spare time. You know, because you've got that obsession with storytelling, you've got that obsession with uh, with doing comics, and most most of my mates, most of the the guys that I know and the and the girls that I know that do comics, they were going to do comics anyways, and yeah. and it just so happens that the job saves us the trouble of having to get another job, but yeah. but comics is is always on the table. You know that that's kind of the the take take the measure of yourself kind of moment where you you have to ask if if you're doing it for the money then oh man there's so many much better choices you can make than comics if you're here for yeah. the money but um but if you're here because this is like just an incredibly awesome and unique sort of system. And, a, and a, an incredibly selfish system of being able to, in small, tiny groups, just get like a little bit of art out there. Um, if you're obsessed with that, then comics is great. But I think, I think you need to check yourself to kind of go, is that why you're here? If that's why you're here, then go for it. You're gonna, like you said, you're, you're gonna be happy the rest of your life, even though you might not make a dime off of it. But I think most people who have that obsession end up almost accidentally being able to support themselves at the very least off of, mm -hmm. uh, off of, off of doing this work. That's the challenge that I have for myself is, is my, my attitude is I get paid for my exhaust. The work that I'm doing <laughs> you know, is, is actually feeding this obsession with trying to make myself a, a better artist and a, and a better mm -hmm. storyteller. If, if I get paid, for the production of that, then then cool. I'm still gonna do it. <laughs> you know, I see that in your work. I see that in uh, in in your lifestyle, and it's it's funny because, like, when I went to your studio, one of the things that I that I thought was really awesome is, as far as your work is concerned, people probably end up seeing ten percent of it. The other ninety percent you know, ends up being in little sketches and little, you know, sort of doodles that get thrown into the trash can, and and just mm -hmm. general stuff that you do. The published work is just the just the ten percent that okay. gets out there, and it takes a lot of work. I mean, it, it really by the time you get to a, a finished page, so much art and so much thinking has been done before that and uh, and and the only thing that that justifies that is that obsession <laughs> so yeah. and and it's cool to see that in other people you know it's 
I often feel like I would like to release a, a story that was um, that looked more like my thumbnails, that was a lot less finished. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> Dude, that's too, the dream. That's the dream. Too uptight. I'm too. I'm too <laughs> My you know, my I'm, my id will not allow me to do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm just I'm just worried people are going to be like, this guy's just stopped trying, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't care anymore. <laughs> but the thing is, I, I genuinely I genuinely like. Well, the thing is, I, I genuinely like my. I was going to say I genuinely like my my thumbnails, my rough sketches. I genuinely like one in ten of them. Mm -hmm. Really, really works for me. Well, well, you know, well, let me let me ask you. Um, this is a thing that that destroys me, and 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 I have a list of people that are just pissed off with this. When you're sitting there and you're just generating thumbnails and you're you know knocking these things out and not really, not really referencing anything, just just pulling it you know sort of out of thin air and putting it on the on the page because that's just how fast your thoughts are are, are flowing. Doesn't it kill you? When you then draw the page and whatever got into that thumbnail, <laughs> can't get it back. <laughs> whatever, whatever energy got into that thumbnail that you did without even thinking about it. Now that you have all the reference in the world and you're actually applying good anatomy, it loses something, you know? It loses the life. <laughs> yeah, it loses. Yeah. yeah, because what happens is. It doesn't happen with every thumbnail. Loads of the thumbnails are are too simple to to work yeah, for yeah, a reader. Yeah, they're just, they're that's, just trash, that's a given. You know? <laughs> yeah. But sometimes when you draw a thumbnail, let's say you're drawing somebody that's wringing their hands with m malicious glee, or <laughs> or they're exasperated trying to explain something, or they're slapping their forehead in disbelief and your thumbnail just captures it yeah. but but the hand that the arm that's slapping the forehead <laughs> is bigger than the legs right yeah. <laughs> you redraw it and the anatomy's right but it's just like it's like poser or something it's just it's just lost everything oh yeah just, yeah, yeah. Well, it just it, doesn't it work anymore feels like, and that, it feels like the finished art is acting like the thumbnail it's not yeah. actually experiencing it like the thumbnail. It's just yeah. acting I, I, like the thumbnail. I tell myself everybody's got that. I don't know if everybody does have that, but um, I hope everybody's got that. Oh, yeah. It's so yeah. destroying to think that I'm in a minority of people. Just me and you. We're the only guys that suffer from that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but that's the thing. That's the thing that, that, that drives me to, uh, to think. And my, my studio mate, um, Hoyt Silva, he um he does a lot of uh, line webtoons, um, which is a, a kind of a web comic format. I, I'm not brave enough to do it, but I always think, okay, I should do the way that I do my thumbnails. Let me do a a, a webtoon just like that, <laughs> you know, where it's like no more detail than that. You know, when when the characters are in the background, just go ahead and put the X on their face, <laughs> you know, and that's. And that's that's it. And just uh, and just see see if it works. One of the things that you said earlier, which I think is is really interesting, uh, and and I know a lot of people have experienced the same thing. I think when you when you start, you you're an artist, 
and, and you're obsessed with getting the art right. But you don't really consider the fact that, that right has a finite definition. And it's only when you become a storyteller that you can realize, oh, wait a minute, right doesn't necessarily mean perfect. It, it, it means having these qualities so I can tell this story. And, and you talked about after you had uh, the experience with Rasper, kind of being less concerned about the art and more concerned mm -hmm. about the art as it relates to the storytelling. Yeah. Um, that, that's something that I, that I really think that a lot, of, a lot of us kind of would love to explore, like how little art <laughs> you know, can you put in? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but the thing is, it's, it's, it's degrees. I mean, like, absolutely, I get more interested in the storytelling than the quality of the drawing. But I'm still hung up enough on the quality of the drawing that I can't put out a story that looks like my thumbnails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want to, and I can't do it yet. I'll need, do you know what? I'll need to go and see Ronald again. I'll need, I'll need to go and get hypnotized again. Okay. Okay. Give me a call. We'll both go see him the same day. That's it. We could, we could do a Zoom with Ronald. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Possibly, I think one of the things that, uh, that 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 might be hanging us both up on this is finding that story that allows you to do that. Finding a story that basically doesn't uh, doesn't speak to that level of detail that we have to have in uh, in, mm -hmm. in what we do. I think uh, I think that's that's a huge difference, you know, in uh, in there, which is really cool. That I think is is a nice quality. Here's something to aim for. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's see which, which one of us can do it first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, challenge. Do you, know what, do you know what we should do? What's that? We should both write a really shitty story that we're not interested <laughs> in, give it to each other to draw. <laughs> and I'll be like, God, this Brian Stelafries, he can really draw, but it's... <laughs> The stories he writes are rubbish, and I'll just do something really quick. Okay. Like, okay. So, so if, if the story is garbage, then it's going to be. That's much it. Yeah. Okay. You just need a bad enough story. I just just need to, need to have something you don't care about. No, but you know, do you know what would happen though? What would happen is we'd get these shitty stories from each other, and then our pride would kick in. We'd think, you know what? I'm going to draw the hell out of this. And make it good. <laughs> okay. Well, well, how about the, how, how about this? And, and this starts with a lie. Okay. I'll write a story for you to draw, but you're not going to draw it. You're going to thumbnail it for me. Okay. And, and you write a story for me to thumbnail for you. Okay. And the plan would be for one day you're going to do finished art of my thumbnails and I'll do finished art of your thumbnails, but we're actually lying to each other. We just take the thumbnails and publish those. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> that way. Okay, but we need, we need to make it short. That's the other thing. We need to make it short. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so if I know you're going to do the art, I won't feel so bad about the thumbnails, you know, and I could possibly let the thumbnails go if I, even if it's a lie, if I'm under the impression that maybe he'll do the art. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> maybe that's the way around it here. <laughs> okay. Um, we, we also, we need to have a couple of caveats, like uh, we need cut back on cityscapes and stuff, you know. I, I want some, I want something I want something set in a desert or an interspace. Okay, desert, out of space, no storm. Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. You know. All right. All right, we have a we have a plan and um and and I believe we have a we have a publisher that's uh that's ready to take this on. So Yeah, we, we can definitely handle this. <laughs> no okay, yeah. Yeah, it's just call it, you know, uh still freezing quietly, um, you know, thumbnails. <laughs> I was going to say earlier, um, and I'm going to follow up with you guys on that one, but we didn't talk about what we're drinking tonight, did we, Sean? Or am I no, forgetting? we did not. We this is a fine shot-by-shot template. Frank, I, I don't know if you've listened to any of the shows, but I always try to do something. I've only, so far, I've only listened to the the first three, which are all Brian. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the most popular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our worst technical show. That was our first episode, and we were like, you know, talking into staticky mics, and I think we were on like uh, radio frequency instead of the internet in some parts. But so I'm not a big uh, Scotch drinker, but I had this. Oh, McAllen, McAllen very nice. <laughs> well, you know, that's like as an American, you don't know if it's actually good stuff from Scotland. You know, like they market it here as good stuff. No, uh, no, the McAllen is. It's a nice whiskey. Um, I've had the I've had the ten year old. I've had the twelve year old, and I had I think I think I've had a twenty year old as well. But um, the Macallan is it's it's a decent, reliable, good quality Scotch. Yeah. Good. Well, okay. So, so here's yeah, the question. Yeah, I'm on a, a Barolo, Barolo, which is which is a just this. It's a big, smooth, chunky Italian. <laughs> wine, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kind of wine is it? It's um, Barolo, I think. See, I, sh- I sh- you know, I should have read up on this before I, I started <laughs> drinking. I think, I think Barolo is um, well, it's Italian. It's red. Uh, it's big. It's smooth. I think, I think Barolo is a grape, not a region. Okay, but no doubt I'll be. Flooded with, uh, or you'll be flooded with, uh, it's with like, people correcting me if I'm wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, this one is a 2014. Nice. It's really very pleasant. Very nice. Yeah, Brian, what are you drinking? In honor of um, of Frank Whiteley, I started off with something sophisticated, but bold which was a double espresso on the rocks. <laughs> was, and, uh, and also, when I was there, a friend of yours who uh, runs a coffee shop that was uh, near the train station, or actually in the train station, that was the best latte I've had in my life. It was absolutely uh, amazing. And I, I met her uh, at, the, uh, at the show after we had the uh, the wrap up at the end of the show, and uh-huh. she said, "Well, come by come by my shop, and they'll fix you up." And that was absolutely amazing. So the lattes in Glasgow, hands down, the best. You know, they they absolutely nailed it. Nice. Mm-hmm. I and actually, shop. when when you were 
talking, one of the three episodes that I listened to, uh, presumably the first one actually, um, you were saying that you had uh, you had some really good quality pu'er, mm-hmm. and a few studios ago for me when I was in Hope Street, the studio I was in when uh, we did the BBC show, what do artists do all day? Uh, at one point, I've shared I've shared studios with a lot of different artists over the years, and um, one of them, a young guy called Paul, who I still refer to as Young Paul, even though he's <laughs> He's, I think he's in his mid-40s now, but he's still young Paul to me. Um, he, bought a, he bought a kind of all the paraphernalia for making tea. He had the, the wooden tray where everything drips into it. Oh, you know, and he had, he had the, the thing that looks like a shaving brush that's made out of yeah. bamboo. I don't know any of the terminology. And uh, every time he would say, do you want a cup of tea? I'd be like, Definitely. And, he, and it would take him like 45 minutes to make it, you know? Oh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. it was always worth the wait. And <laughs> he bought a bunch of teas from uh, from lots of different places. And he had a few different pu'ers, and one of them was just sublime. It was oh, just yeah. like, it was just like the best thing ever. I had several cups of that every day for several months until that particular batch had dried up and I've never had anything like it since. I'll need to actually, I'll need to get in touch with him and see if he remembers what it was. But because I think, I think Pu'er is like sort of teazilla. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like tea times 10. And I, I try my best to keep it as tea and not elevate it or downgrade it to tea as a drug. <laughs> and uh, and Puer is like that's definitely one of my favorites. Sean, what do you, what are you throwing tonight? Oh, I, this is not even worth mentioning. It is a new brand of sparkling water, a la Lacroix, <laughs> but the difference is it has caffeine. So this is Aha, uh, <laughs> and it is really basic. Nice. <laughs> it, it's almost something I was trying to hide from the shot by shot. Mm, exposition but brian uh, you're not too far away i feel like you're drinking sparkling water right now as well yeah yeah right now i'm I'm finishing with uh with some topo choco uh sparkling water i also i also have some uh, some of (laughs) yesterday's tap water in a bottle (laughs) just to keep just to keep me hydrated while i'm drinking all this red wine yeah you should should say scottish tap water yeah apparently apparently the trick with tap water is you you pour it into the glass and then you leave it for 20 minutes and all the chlorine that's in it escapes as gas and then it tastes then it's got no flavor anymore apparently that's what restaurants do they fill all the jugs with tap water and they all taste of chlorine and whatever else you put in it but all the chlorine escapes as gas after 20 minutes Man. Again, people are going to start sending stuff <laughs> in going, it takes several hours or it doesn't work at all. But this could be like How an epiphany. You? Like, we always buy <laughs> yeah. bottled water. All you have to do is wait 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. The chemical yeah. composition of chlorine. <laughs> bottled water, the biggest scam ever uh, yeah. launched. I mean, just absolutely a joke. My kids, my wife, they all, just bottled water all day long. I'm like, I'm going to the fridge. Just, you know. It comes right out. It's nice and cold. Tastes just fine. <laughs> yeah, and it's also you're not constantly 
You're not constantly buying more plastic bottles. And how much water? Unless you're super posh and you're buying your 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 water in glass bottles, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Imported from Italy. (laughs) Forget about the kerosene in the atmosphere. (laughs) It comes directly from the Highland glaciers. Oh yeah, we we we've got amazing water in Scotland, but you know I insist on importing. You know, like I'm just importing water from Japan. Yes, <laughs> makes it in, even in better. Stone jugs. Uh, oh, I think that that just about uh, wraps it up for us. But um, but dude, I have to really thank you. When Kevin and I were thinking about like uh, having some folks kind of step in and uh, and do some covers, your name was was definitely kind of first on the list, especially considering uh, the character. And everything like that. It's just like to me, this this would be an awesome book, even if it was drawn by you. So so I thought, man, he would be he would be perfect for like just a paramilitary badass, <laughs> you know, uh, on the uh, on the cover. So um so when when you gave the okay for that, dude, uh, it just I was absolutely humbled and it blew my mind. And I, I definitely wanted to sort of thank you for accepting the job and thank you for doing such an amazing job on the cover. I mean, everything from from the pencils to the colors, I'm totally like blown away. You really killed it, man. You absolutely killed it. Thanks very much, Brian. Um, I felt character-wise, it was a great fit. As I said earlier, uh, I was delighted to be asked because I'm a big fan. I've got to say, in in light of our conversation, I, I now wish that I'd done a really quick shitty rough sketch because <laughs> you may have liked it better <laughs> i'll do that next time okay next time you you will you will show bravery <laughs> as a, i'll be brave i'll be brave and send you something really shit yes. uh, well dude it was it was great great hanging out with you thank you for your for your hospitality on the visit and everything like that and uh and if you're in my neighborhood in the uh, in the states, definitely let's hang out. It'd be great. I'd love to sort of talk in country and talk and shop with you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Brian. Brian. Thank Brian you, John. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Frank. It's oh. been a, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So that was the uh, the second part of our episode with Frank. Hope everyone enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, I definitely think that uh, from a fanboy standpoint. I know I enjoyed it. And uh, what about you, Sean? Oh, yeah. I mean, Frank quietly in a bottle of wine. If, if every panel at San Diego Comic-Con, when you could go to San Diego Comic-Con, was Frank quietly in a bottle of wine, I would never be on the show floor. I would just be <laughs> absorbed by red wine, Frank quietly. I would do a podcast that was solely red wine, Frank quietly. Oh, who wouldn't? I mean, seriously. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was a real treat. I, this was a special podcast, and and um, just because he's sort of a guy that people don't know, because he doesn't do the social media thing, uh, he's not doing the all the like you know Comic Con and New York Comic Con, and he's just not around all that much. So it, it's it was nice to actually get to know a little bit about his process and who he is, and you know it's it's really cool too when somebody that you have. Uh, looked up to as you know, for their artwork and has been a part of so many huge projects and you're just like man this guy's amazing 
and then you get to talk to them and hang out a little bit and you see that they're actually that cool or even better in real life so that that was a nice treat i really want to do a podcast with jeff smith and frank quietly together yeah that would be uh that would be pretty damn awesome yeah so i don't know everybody we'll see if it happens <laughs> and at some point too we need to get a, a gigantic douche somebody that like we like when we get done with the podcast it's like yeah here it is <laughs> we can make that work too i'm sure Probably we can so. find somebody <laughs> all right everybody uh we'll be back shortly with another fantastic guest this guest is one of the few people whose artwork i have actually bought so I don't buy comic pages, but I've actually bought a comic page from this gentleman. But stay tuned and we will return shortly. But thanks everybody. Thanks a lot.